Welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Professor Janan Ismail. I learned so much from this conversation, and I say that after every podcast conversation, and it, it's true. But my exchange with Janan was, you know, wonderfully clarifying and mind-altering, just as I expected it to be. And it was a little different because I actually came to the conversation with one specific overriding question about metaphysical foundations, and I really wanted to hear Janan sketch out a solution to this problem. So I was coming to her as a kind of an agony ant, you know, a, a metaphysical agony ant. And so halfway through the conversation, you'll hear me ask this question, and you know, you'll hear all about how it goes and her response. And the reason I had this one specific question is because Janan and I first connected back in the summer. I attended one of her seminars, and towards the end of the Q and A. I was struck by this, this problem that she'd been hinting at the whole way through about the relationships between subjects and objects and the way that subjects interact with and interfere with and manipulate the world in their very actions. It's the idea that the subject is part of the world. So in the very act of measuring the world, the subject somehow changes the outcome of the measurement. That in the very act of asking a question, you know, the, the answer itself changes. So I was really struck by this problem of subjectivity and objectivity and this feedback loop with the subject embedded in the world and how we can ever achieve knowledge that's not infected with perspective, knowledge that's not infected by, by the subject's handprint. So Janan and I talked about this very briefly at the end of this one Q&A in the summer, and I really felt a strong urge to follow up and to have a longer conversation about this question and other aspects of her work, because she really is an incredible philosopher. If you're a listener of the podcast, you'll have heard me mention her name several times in past episodes. Janan has a wonderful way of framing metaphysical questions about time and perspective and the fundamental nature of physics in a way that's very intriguing, but also very clarifying. So I was really thrilled to have Janan on the podcast. It's not an understatement to say that my guests are getting more and more exciting every week. Janan is being described by John Perry, for instance, as a leading philosopher of her generation. And she really is an absolute leader in the field of history and philosophy of science, HBS, the field that I'm kind of most closely working in at the moment. Her work is talked about a lot in my circles, and it's very highly regarded. So anyway, in this conversation, we build up to my question. In the first half, we talk more generally about subjectivity and objectivity. We talk about the experience of the flow of time. We talk about experiences of pain and color. We talk about the experience of navigating the world. And then we discuss my problem about metaphysical foundations. And a little bit more about Janan. She's a professor of philosophy at Columbia University, and she's also taught at Stanford University and the University of Arizona. Janan is the author of the books Essays on Symmetry, The Situated Self, How Physics Makes Us Free, and Time, A Very Short Introduction. If you're new to philosophy and you haven't studied it before, I really recommend the book How Physics Makes Us Free. It's very accessible, it's very fun, and it really shows the way that Janan thinks about these very big picture metaphysical questions in a very intriguing and clarifying way. And if you have more of a background in philosophy, and you're ready for some more meaty kind of stuff, I also recommend The Situate Itself. And we talk about a couple of the core ideas in our conversation today. So with great pleasure, I bring you my conversation 
with Professor Janan Ismail. I am very excited to be here today with Professor Janan Ismail. Janan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I've actually been a big fan of your work for the past couple of years, and my listeners should recognize your name because I've mentioned you a couple of times in previous episodes, especially in episodes five and six. I touched on topics like the self, free will, the flow of time, and I discussed your work with some great enthusiasm. So it's, uh, it's very exciting to have you here in person so we can kind of discuss your ideas in greater detail and so my listeners can hear, uh, hear you express these ideas for yourself. So to start, tell me a bit more about your academic background. So you're a professor of philosophy at Columbia University in New York, and you're a philosopher of science. What's the best way to describe what you do? And what are, what are some of your current research interests? So that's a bit of a hard question. I mean, I think I went into philosophy in part because I'm interested in so many things, and philosophy tolerates that kind of dilettantism. Um, I went into philosophy of physics in particular, I think, because the kinds of questions that I'm interested in and the kinds of questions that philosophers talk about, you know, often are addressed from the armchair. And I think it, for me, it's hard to get traction when you're presented with just wildly different worldviews. And there's nothing to judge between them. But when I was in graduate school, you know, criteria like theoretical elegance, or um, I think one favors certain sorts of metaphysical premises, and that just didn't seem the right way to go about it at all. Philosophy of physics is wonderful in so many ways, because it will take these questions, and precisely because it does aim for a worldview. Um, I mean, a complete comprehensive account of what there is and how we fit into it. Um, it, it, it comes up against the sorts of questions that philosophers were asking, but it has all kinds of advantages. For, I mean, the first and the most obvious one, or the way that I like to think of it, in fact, is that metaphysical questions sort of passed into the hands of the physicists. So questions about what is space, what is time, what are we, and how do we fit into the, the cosmos, those became questions for physics, but the way that physics addressed them was a little bit different. So it was no longer a single person sitting in the armchair and dreaming up a worldview and relying on sort of the observed regularities of everyday experience. It was a whole bunch of people systematically gathering evidence and then, you know, sort of employing mathematical tools that permit of a kind of precision and rigor that one person's imagination doesn't. Um, and those are the things that go into systematically describing you know, sort of everything that we know about the cosmos in a framework that is meant to be a complete catalog of being. So that's why I think I got into philosophy of physics, not because I was interested specifically in physics, but I was interested in all of these questions that physics seemed to me to be answering in a, um, with new methods and new kinds of power. I love that motivation. I think you're really speaking to what I talked about in the very first episode of this podcast. I kind of had a rant about armchair philosophy and tried to talk about philosophy that takes empirical work seriously. I've talked about this a lot in previous episodes. And I think the philosophy of physics is a perfect example of where philosophy and physics uh, and empirical science should and must work hand in hand. So these are metaphysical questions within the domain of philosophy. And yet we need to 
be familiar with the most contemporary empirical physics in order to be able to answer these questions because armchair metaphysics doesn't cut it anymore. The physics does have some privileged access to these questions and they can't finish the task by itself. We need philosophers of physics who can come in and kind of take the ropes and lead us to the metaphysical answers about space, time, self and all these kinds of things. I agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think too that physics is in a way it's continuous with the armchair speculation. It just... You know, we've always used empirical data to try to answer these questions. And we've always used, you know, sort of reasoning and logic. But physics gives us a lot more data. It's much more precisely formulated in the mathematical tools that allow us to, the mathematical tools that are brought to bear on those questions and on the systematization of the empirical data. Those turn out to be tremendously powerful. I think just in terms of I mean, one of the questions that people often um, ask me when I give that kind of an answer to questions about why physics is that I think that one of the things that mathematical tools can do is they push the imagination beyond the limits that we sort of think that we find in the armchair. So things that, that you know, your intuition will tell you are inconceivable or impossible we find, in fact, um, are not. So physics will come up with a formalism that describes the phenomena, that embeds the phenomena, and then the imagination has to make sense of the formalism. And often that means leaving common sense um, behind. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think that's part of the power of physics. And yeah, I totally agree. I think that we should be leaving behind intuition and common sense that's one of my main criticisms of armchair philosophy is that we can't expect our primitive intuitions, which evolved in a certain context, you know, 100,000 years ago, we can't expect those intuitions to solve deep metaphysical problems because they never evolved to tackle these things. So I think it's excellent that we that philosophy is now in a position that it can leave our intuitions and leave the armchair behind and, you know, take up these mathematical tools, uh, you know, to, to answer metaphysical questions. So I really agree with that approach. Right. I mean, I think one one of the nice things about um, thinking in these terms is that you see that the authority that common sense has is just as, in the way that you said, as an embodiment of you know the sorts of regularities that that we see in the world around us, the sort of crude regularities that we need to to take account of to track feeding and mating opportunities, um, and beyond that, it has no authority. And so I'd like to quickly plug some of your work. My listeners might not have heard of the the titles before. So today in particular, I'd like to discuss uh, your books, The Situated Self from 2007, and I have it here with me, and also How Physics Makes Us Free from 2016, and also your paper, Passage Flow and the Logic of Temporal Perspectives. But I should also mention that you're the author of the book, Essays on Symmetry from 2001, and you have a new book coming out very soon, which is Time, A Very Short Introduction. And I know that the Very Short Introduction series is excellent, so I'm really looking forward to reading your new entry. Have you been busy working on this new book, or you know, is it mostly finished and ready for publication at this point? It's actually in press already, so it should be out. I think it comes out in the UK October 28th, and um, in America a couple of months later. Ah, excellent. Very soon. And so... 
you know, since your latest book is on time, I thought it was a good way to start the conversation today. I think I'd like to start with kind of our own short introduction on time, uh, especially for the benefit of listeners who haven't studied philosophy, because I think that the nature of time is a particularly fascinating issue. And recently it's been the subject of, you know, lots of things in pop culture, like science fiction films like Interstellar. And I think that had a wide appeal precisely because its treatment of time was so you know, intriguing and mind boggling. And I think a lot of people are drawn to these these kind of pop philosophy questions about the nature of time. Like, is time real? Is time like a psychological construct, a product of our human experience? Or is it this mind independent reality in some way? And also questions like, is time related to entropy or change? Does time exist without change? So there's some kind of broad questions. Hopefully our listeners will find them intriguing. And maybe we can try to lay out some groundwork for tackling these questions about the philosophy of time. So how do you feel about the philosophy of time as a topic? You know, have you noticed anything about its popular appeal or academic appeal in recent years? Right. I mean, it's one of these beautiful topics, just because actually I was thinking about this when I was writing a very short introduction. There's literally no field that I can think of in the academy, no field of study, in which time doesn't play some kind of a central role. But if you look at sort of the way time figures in history, the way it figures in geography, the way it figures in physics, and the way it figures in biology, it's completely different in every one of those. Not to, not to mention the way it runs through narrative fiction and other narrative so it's one of these beautiful topics that that no human you cannot understand human life or life biology you know life in the in um, the natural world without understanding something about time but it is also you know one of the as Craig Callender said in his wonderful book it's I mean the way he said it was it's this big familiar thing that will kill you or something like that <laughs> but but it's, it, it's, it's absolutely central in human life. And yet, one of the things that made it in physics um, an issue of central philosophical concern is that um, in physics in the last century, so there were two developments, as you and your readers probably know, two great big developments um, that really changed the way that we think about absolutely fundamental concepts. And one was, the first one was, the development of relativity. And the way that relativity portrayed time, that is the image of time that's associated with relativity theory, is very different from the familiar flowing time of everyday sense. And the stark contrast between these two images um, set up a kind of dialectic that made it look like there were competing views of what time was. And it became sort of common to take sides on which of these views, one of which is supposed to get its authority from physics and one of which is supposed to get its authority from experience. It became common to set this up as a, as a great big conflict and one takes sides on which one, you know, which one is the correct portrayal of time and so on. Um, and that's, that rift which I think of as the time war, still runs through philosophy. So, um, and in physics, I think most people, not everybody, but most people ended up thinking that the familiar flowing time of everyday sense is some kind of an illusion. And what physics has discovered is that it sometimes varies as that time is unreal or the passage and flow are illusory and so on. 
Yeah, and I love that you, I think it might be a Doctor Who metaphor you used with the time wars uh, between experience versus physics. I think we should dive into that paper, Passage Flow and the Logic of Temporal Perspectives, because you really, you talk about this problem uh, in quite great detail. And I love the way that you you account for the subjective experience of the flow of time, you know, in, in language that's in keeping with empirical physics. So, you know, the time wars would like to say that that these two realities are completely incompatible, that we can't have both the static time described by physics and the flowing time that human beings experience from one moment to the next. But in, in this paper, you apply the, the analysis of frames of reference. Uh, this apparent dualism between subjective flowing time and objective static time can be explained in terms of reference frames. They're just realities that exist in different frames of reference. So the experience of the flow of time is simply a frame-dependent phenomenon. So it exists within a certain frame. And the frame must be a temporally evolving point of view, as you call it, a tev-pov. And the, the great point here, I think, is that under the right conditions, you know, within the right frame, any system can experience time as flowing. And they don't even need to be conscious. You know, they just need to have certain conditions that human beings have, like an asymmetry of knowledge about the past, but not the future, and an asymmetry of choosing actions in the future, but not the past, memory, but also prospection, so choosing future actions. So the fact that humans experience time as flowing, you know, it's not some metaphysical mystery. It's just a product of these attributes, the attributes that make a human being an embedded agent in time. And in your paper, you kind of lead us through this thought experiment with the AI system, IGUS, who has all the necessary attributes. And so, because it has these attributes, it also experiences time as flowing. So I think it's a pretty neat solution. I think this is a great way to account for the flow of time, you know, in keeping with empirical physics. So there doesn't need to be a contradiction between static time and flowing time. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. It's a solution of the same form as, you know, there's this Wittgenstein quote where Wittgenstein says, you know, somebody asks, some people often say that what's so surprising about the fact that the Earth orbits around the sun is that it doesn't look as though the Earth orbits around the sun. And then he says, but what would it look like if it did? And the answer, I mean, that's funny in the way that a lot of what Wittgenstein says is funny because the answer is, of course, it would look just like that. <laughs> it would look just the same. So I was doing exactly the same thing. I mean, I was just starting with the question and asking, what would time seem like to embedded viewers of the four-dimensional manifold of events described by physics if that was correct, if relativity was correct? And the answer is pretty much as it does. Mm -hmm. So the, the task was in exactly that same way, to recover from the inside the view of time that embedded observers, the way time would look from the point of view of embedded observers over the course of their life. So that's what that paper was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I think the wider insight from that kind of conclusion is that physics allows certain experience to be inherently subjective and frame dependent. So we can have both these objective, you know, third person descriptions, and we can have, you know, ostensibly subjective first person descriptions without any contradiction. And I'd like to use this as a kind of a springboard to talk about a wider puzzle in philosophy, because I think it points towards a kind of a very broad and challenging puzzle of reconciling first person and third person perspectives. 
So philosophers refer to this puzzle in many ways, you know, a dichotomy between subject versus object, the mental and the physical, the inner and private versus the outer and public. And so it's the similar problem as we have with the flow of time. You know, on the one hand, we have this the kind of the first person subjective experiences of human beings. And on the other hand, we have these third person descriptions of empirical science, experiences such as having a self or having free will or experiencing the flow of time. And so the problem is when we turn to empirical science, we find descriptions of deterministic biology and neurochemistry that don't seem to leave a place for the self and free will. And equally with the problem of time, we find this in third person physics, we find descriptions of time as static. So it's kind of this wider puzzle in many subtopics in philosophy of reconciling first person and third person perspectives. And of course, you know, surely we don't want to eliminate either. We don't want to deny the reality of subjective human experiences and we don't want to deny the accuracy of empirical theories. So we have to find a way to reconcile the two. So what do you think of this kind of wider problem of bringing human experience in line with empirical science? You know, is it is it exciting? Is it challenging? Yes. I mean, I agree with everything that you said about it, that the, that the time case is precisely the template for this wider set of issues about reconciling, as you put it, the subjective and the objective, or as it sometimes put, the scientific image and the manifest image of the world. And the, the case of time is a particularly easy one in some ways, because we can write down something that has the formal character of a frame of reference. And we can, in a very straightforward way, if my construction is, is, is anything like in the right direction, we can, in a fairly straightforward way, um, show how to recover something with the form of temporal experience by seeing it as implicitly relativized to a frame of reference that's itself drawn out, you know, sort of drawn out in time, that's itself has extension in time. So that was meant as the first, you know, sort of easy pass at a problem that permits of a particularly simple formulation. But you're exactly right that this whole cluster of issues is the same kind of thing. I think, and physics doesn't just allow for frame dependence. Physics entails that there will be frame-dependent quantities if there are, on the one hand, intrinsic quantities, on the other hand, observers of those intrinsic quantities. So we should expect that, that features of our you know, own internal life are at least in part implicitly relational. And then the task is to sort of separate out from the appearances those features of our experience that are implicitly relativized to our situation and those that carry information about the way the world is. But notice that we aren't merely a formal kind of frame of reference. The way that the world appears to us depends not just on where we are in space and time, but on the way that our bodies are and the, the channels through which we interact with the world and all kinds of in, you know, um, built-in features of our own psyches. Not just built-in features of our own psyches, but features of our own psyches that develop in part as a result of a coupled interaction with the world. And moreover, we come into the world with both epistemic and practical 
um, we, something we might call perspectives, but by that we mean certain um, channels through which we know about the world and certain channels through which we affect the world. And all of that is, um, you know, sort of built into the notion of a first-person perspective, or all of that is in some way a filter through which we interact with the world. So, so this, the generalization from the temporal case to a notion of frame of reference that's rich enough to capture the actual embodied experience of a creature in the world of a very particular type. That's what one wants to do. And I love that approach. I think we should, in a short while, we should move to some of those topics like, you know, concepts, qualia, maybe even meaning, and see if we can extend this frame of reference analysis to to tackle some of those those uh, those problems. Just to respond to what you said, I love the way you're describing, it's a big theme, of course, in your book, The, the Situated Self, that our experience in the world, of course, is embodied and embedded. We are human beings with, you know, fleshy capacities, and we also are situated and embedded in a certain vantage point in the environment. So, we can phrase all this in the language of empirical science, and yet we can use that information you know, about our physical location and physical body to get at questions about first-person perspectives and subjectivity. And, and you know, in the situation itself, you talk about you know, perspectival knowledge, that you know, we always have a perspectival view of the landscape from a certain location. So everything we do as humans, as observers, as agents, comes from a physical vantage point in the environment. That's the, the situated or embedded aspect. And it also comes from this kind of embodied vantage point where it's happening through human eyes and human brains. I love that approach of, you know, talking about the conditions of embodiment and embeddedness and using those kind of third person descriptions as a way to get at the first person experiences of being a human and being an observer. Right, yeah, we're in complete agreement. So we should move on to talk about the problem of qualia, perhaps. This is another subtopic where we might apply the frames of reference analysis to talk about you know, the frame-dependent experiences of human subjects versus the frame-independent descriptions of modern physics. So a quick introduction to the problem of qualia for my listeners who haven't studied philosophy in the past. This is the idea that some conscious experiences have this subjective felt quality, you know, as something that is like to have an experience or what's it's like, as some people call it sometimes. So, for example, with pain, there's something it is like to be in pain. You know, pain has this subjective felt quality, which is not contained in an objective description of pain. So is that a fair summary of the notion of qualia? You know, this idea of something it is like to have an experience? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And the quality is often contrasted with the content. So the content is the way that the world presents itself to you in your experience. And the quality is this intrinsic aspect that's supposed to capture the sense of what it's like. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like pain has this frame dependent aspect that within the frame of the subject or the experiencer of the pain or other qualia, there's something it is like to have that experience. This is a highly useful way to think about qualia that, you know, when we talk about pain, we need to think about for whom, you know, and which C fibers. We can't talk about pain in this abstract, detached frame, independent context. You know, pain is always private and owned and frame dependent. 
And I really liked your notion of a personal palette in the situated self. So it's your analogy to a physical frame of reference, you know, where there are coordinates in a physical reference frame. You know, you talk about a phenomenal reference frame. So the phenomenal profile of an experience is a set of coordinates on a personal palette. And we all have these personal palettes built up from our life history. You know, we all have these past experiences of pain and color and so on. And this felt quality can't be captured objectively because it's not a property of, you know, the event itself, but rather it's it's a relation to our personal palette, a relation to the amassed experiences we have. One quote I really liked from chapter nine of The Situated Self, what it's like is not a property of properties, but a function from events to locations on a personal palette. So in other words, it's a frame dependent relation, you know, within a certain frame of a human being. So do you want to say anything more about frames of reference and personal palettes? <laughs> so I'm going to say something that's going to disappoint you a little bit, mm-hmm. which is that um, I don't think that entirely solves the problem of qualia, the hard problem of consciousness, as it's sometimes put in the contemporary literature. So the way that the problem um, is is sort of often introduced and put is that, look, you can know everything there is to know in physical terms about a creature and not know whether it's conscious. And you can know everything there is to know about the brain states of, of the creature without knowing what its experiences are like, even if you know that it has has experiences. Um, I think everything that I said about the form of the relationship between one's one's own qualitative experiences and the public properties in the landscape that we can exchange information about. I think that's right. But I don't, I think it's rather an explanation of why we shouldn't expect ever to be able to give in objective terms what would satisfy people who want a solution to the hard problem of consciousness, which is some sort of content-preserving reduction, so that once you saw the, you know, the physical description, you'd immediately be able to tell whether something was conscious and what its conscious life was like. So it's not so much that I think that solves the problem as it explains why the problem exists and is insoluble in the terms that the you know, kind of people who worry a lot about qualia and worry that it's not reducible to physics. Um, why that problem has the shape it does and shouldn't, and and it's misguided to expect a solution in that form. Right. You know, I totally agree. As you put it, I think it's the physical description is not only incomplete; it's incompletable. So I really do think that the, as you put it, the the objective description can never capture the frame dependent experience of pain. But I think the takeaway for me was that we can still use the third person descriptions, you know, as you say, the frame independent descriptions to explain why the experience of pain is forever out of reach of the frame independent descriptions of of pain. Exactly right. Yeah. And the same is true for colour experience. Maybe we could talk a bit about Mary in the black and white room. I mean, for anyone who studied philosophy, you know, since early university like me, you'll have heard of this thought experiment several times. It keeps coming up. But for anyone who hasn't heard of it, this is a very famous thought experiment from Frank Jackson involving a woman called Mary. So you have to imagine that Mary is in a black and white room. So in this room, she can experience any color. And upon leaving the room, she for the first time sees a red tomato. 
and at that point experiences redness as a kind of a felt subjective quality. And the question is, when Mary was still stuck in the black and white room, was there any information, any you know, frame independent third person descriptions of redness that could have communicated to Mary what it was like to see a red tomato, you know, in the world outside that room. And again, I think this points to the fact that the frame independent descriptions are incompletable. Whatever it is about the experience of redness, it's not, it's, it can't be contained in an objective description of redness. And I don't think there's anything contradictory in that. You know, it's, that's perfectly in keeping with what we know about empirical physics. I think that this kind of aligns with an internalist position about the nature of qualia, that whatever it is, the experience of redness is an internal property of Mary's experience. It's a relation to her personal palette of past colour experiences. And so it can't ever be contained in something that's outside of Mary's frame of experience. So I think you might agree that colour also fits into this analysis of frames of reference. Yes, absolutely. You forgot one crucial thing for your readers about the thought experiment, of course. which is that you're supposed to um, imagine that Mary knows absolute. She's a color. She's a famed color scientist. So she's read every textbook on color. She knows that is to say she believes true the proposition that tomatoes are red. Um, and so she knows every kind of propositionally expressible objective fact about colors like red and the other colors. I really like um, something I suggested in Situated Self and then found out that it was actually earlier suggested by Nita Rumelin that um, that you can also even make the, the thought experiment stronger in a way that's strong, that, that very much points to what you just said, which is you can imagine that Mary, that it's not just that she's been confined to this black and white, room so she's never had color experience and knows all of the objective physical facts about color. You can even imagine that from time to time she's led out into this other room that's full of all of the colors. So she's had red experiences and blue experiences, but nobody attached labels to them. So nobody told her this one is red. So that she's had all of those experiences. She has a kind of internal palette that she can draw on. And she has all of this objective knowledge what does she find out when for the first time someone holds up a red object in front of her and says, this is a tomato, or here's a fire truck? She already knew, mind you, that tomatoes were red. She just didn't know what it was like to see one because she had never been able to connect the red experience with the label red because they had never been put together for her in the way that they are when you're shown a red object and told that it was red. So I think the way that I would put it is exactly the way that you did, that on the one hand, one has a set of experiences that are presented rather than represented. And those are the things that one connects to examples of objects when one is trying to assign colors to the objects. But those things, that internal palette of experiences that you have to draw on and whose nomological relationships to things in the world ultimately provides you information about those things, those internal kind of colors or the palette are things that are reflexively known by you, not, not represented. They're things that are displayed in your own mind. Um, and because of that, um, connecting them to something in the world 
is making a relation that can only be made by connecting an experience with an object. That's, that was the idea. So it's separating out you know, the objective content from the implicitly relational. And Frank Jackson wanted to argue that it was a problem for physicalism. And yet here we are arguing that, no, it's fine. It's perfectly in keeping with what we can say about third person descriptions. They were never meant to be complete in this way. It's simply uh, an experience that's, that only exists within Mary's frame of experience. That's right. It's implicitly relational. I mean, this is why I used in that book the example of space So, and our spatial representations. So, I mean, the reason it's a very good analogy is because we are mobile creatures, we are very practiced at um, using you know, representa- objective representations of space to make our way around. But we also know that an objective representation of space is going to do you zero good in terms of getting around space unless you can locate yourself on it. And what is locating yourself on it? That's establishing exactly that kind of irreducibly relational first-person fact. It's about connecting things that, that are presented to you like the objects in your immediate environment, with something that's represented by a dot on a map. So the idea here was we know what a complete and correct description of space would look like that captures all of the points that there are and their intrinsic relationships to one another. But that's not going to tell us this one thing that we need to know to use the thing to get around, which is which one of those dots is the one that we're at. Or even if you had a complete description of the world with all of the people at different locations in space, you would need to know which one of them is you. And that, that, that thought, that one is me, or that is my location, is one that bridges the gap between a purely objective representation and something that's not represented but presented. And the, and the, the claim was that physics, in order to be complete, as complete as it ever could be, and complete as it ever could aspire to be, would be like a map of space. It wouldn't be something that would announce your location to you, because it would need to be something that could be used by anyone you know, at, at other locations and so on. So the, thing, the very thing that needs to get left out in order for it to be complete is the thing that the people who, by analogy, the people by analogy who are complaining that the hard problem is so is you know hard because it doesn't contain this extra piece of information that extra piece of information has to be missing insofar as it's subjective mm-hmm. it's like the you are here dot on the map and it's a great term for the you are here dot which we use i spent a lot of time studying human spatial navigation which is kind of at the, the crossover between philosophy and neuroscience or neurophilosophy So I spent many, many months reading about spatial navigation and object recognition, and we use the terms egocentric and allocentric. So allocentric here is the idea that, again, this is the kind of complete objective representation of space, an allocentric map of a city with no reference to, you know, the point of origin being me. And then there's the egocentric representation, which has me as the point of origin. And with human spatial navigation, it turns out that we need both, of course, Of course, we need the I am here marker, the egocentric locator, 
but it becomes very costly to use that only that frame of reference to you know map a whole city or something. So what humans do to navigate is we mix the allocentric and egocentric. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I think, you know, there's something something very important about the frame dependent egocentric marker being completely necessary and in keeping with information that we need about the world. And it can't be captured in a purely objective description. That's right. There's also another phrase that I think captures a, a crucial piece of it, which is sometimes I talk in terms of detached representations. So, of course, all of the representations that we use are attached in the sense that, you know, our sensory experiences and so on um, are sensory experiences for us. And we can use the, and they bear kind of, you know, nomological relations to things in the environment. And, and we use them as attached representations to make our way around. But, you know, we also have a need to some extent, if we want to have representations that don't depend on our situation or whose content or meaning or the information that they carry don't depend on our on our own situation in the world. That is a map or a representation whose content is entirely independent of who's using it or where it's being used from. Then its content has to be, in this sense, detached. And if we're going to use detached representations, we're going to need to locate ourselves on them before we can use them. So that's so a map is a detached, in a quite literal sense, a detached representation. You can pick up a map and you can move it around and it's going to continue to represent independently, you know, represent and represent accurately, independently of who's carrying it or where it is. On the other hand, a map with the you are here dot is only accurate insofar as either if the dot's fixed, either the dot doesn't move or the dot moves with the map as it's moved around. So, so a detached representation is something that on the one hand we have a use for, but on the other hand is not going to let us use it without reattaching it and reattaching it, so to speak, on demand in a way that depends on our, our situation in the domain that it represents. I love those terms, detached and attached. I think it's very astute. And so when you think about sort of the Qualia case, it's exactly the same. You know, we represent something as, you know, having certain objective prop reflectance properties of the of surfaces and so on. And, and we come up with, you know, a sort of descriptive machinery that uses color labels. But none of those color labels is going to mean anything to a person until they can attach it to some experience that they have. As soon as they can attach it to an experience, then they can use it to navigate by virtue of, you know, it carrying information about reflectant services and so on because of its nomological relationship to them. So that's what that's what Black and White Mary is doing. Not the first time she has the experience of red, but the first time she's able to look at a red thing and say, ah, this is what it's like to be red at the moment she's having the experience because now she can attach the experience to the label. So I'd like to move to our last topic for discussion today. And it's actually the reason that we ended up connecting for this podcast, because I heard you speak at a seminar in the early summer, which was really excellent. And I was really captivated by the kind of discussion about negative feedback at the end. So this is kind of a complex problem. Uh, It's kind of a it's a metaphysical problem about whether there are foundations for metaphysics. And there are kind of many ways to approach the problem. But I think 
we can start with the idea of negative feedback. So I think it's a useful way to describe the, the issue. And it's the, the idea that when the subject measures the world or when the subject interacts with the world, in some way they're part of the process. So there's this kind of feedback loop between the subject and the object that the two are kind of wrapped up together and there's nothing really outside of the feedback loop of which to speak. And actually for a previous episode of this podcast, I interviewed Maura Burke and she's working on her own kind of novel metaphysical position called the agent-dependent view, which sees humans as agents, but not observers. So if humans are seen as agents, you know, they're seen as being able to intervene, to manipulate stuff. And all this creates the same kind of negative feedback that the human is not just kind of observing passively, but rather they're kind of intervening. They're actively engaging with objects in the world. And, you know, this this very active measuring kind of manipulates and changes objects. So anyway, all of this is a challenge to the idea that the world is in some way independent of the subject. And if we're going to be metaphysical realists, if we're going to accept metaphysical foundations, it seems like the world must be in some way distinct from and independent of the perceiving subject. So I think this idea of negative feedback is challenging. Um, you know, how can we measure the world if we're also part of the world? So I'd love to hear more about, you know, how, how you think about negative feedback and whether you think it's, you know, how big of a challenge you think it is. Good. Okay. I really like the way that you put it. It wasn't quite the way that I was thinking about it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's apt and it pushes it in a direction that um, I'd, I'd like to talk about. So mm-hmm. I put it in terms of interference. And I did that in part because I wanted to make the case as clearly as I could without presupposing anything like agency. So the idea was supposed to be that before you talk about I mean, I agree, of course, that we're agents and we intervene. But before you talk about agency, if you could just describe something that made agency inescapable, so to speak, in a very deflationary way for a creature that exists, then you could see agency as building on top of that instead of begging the question against someone who is skeptical that there was such a thing as agency. So so I started just with the, the most basic, sort of example that I could of why it might be that a creature, not just a creature, but any kind of system in the world would be unable to accurately and completely represent the world. So I imagined a computer or some grand, some grand repository of information like a database about the world and the thing is supposed to answer any question that you put to it truthfully so what do we do we're trying to build this thing we we give it you know all of our scientific knowledge and all of the kind of factual information that we know facts about history the price of tea in china in 1941 and so on there's always going to be for a creature like that and for reasons that are well known to logicians and philosophers, um, a problem about answering certain sorts of questions. So you can give it a question. You can, for any system in the world that's supposed to be able to answer truthfully any question given, you can invent a question that it will not be able to truthfully answer. And the question is simple. And again, I did it this way in part just to boil it down to its most austere and inescapable um, 
form, you just ask it. Suppose it, it answers yes or no. That's what it does. You feed it a question and it answers yes or no. Here's the question you ask it. It answers yes or no on some sort of output channel. Is the answer that's about to appear in the output channel no? So if you think about that for a second, you'll see immediately that it's unanswerable correctly by the system. And the reason is, and this is how I put it, I, I said, because by answering the question, the system is going to be doing things. And by doing things, I just mean it's going to be making true certain things, certain propositions that fall in the domain of truths that it's supposed to answer questions to. Or if you don't like the linguistic form, I tend to prefer to put things because it's more directly applicable, it's more directly amenable to physical representation in terms of events. It's going to be enacting an event that it's also supposed to be describing. And what we've done here is just identified the event that it's describing with the event that it's enacting in the very act of trying to describe it and made sure that there's a relationship of negative interference between the two. What do I mean by negative interference? I mean just that whatever answer it gives is going to make true the opposite of what it says. So if it says, if it responds no, then the true answer is yes. It makes true yes in response to the question, is the, the word that's about to appear in the output channel no? It makes it true that the correct answer is yes. And in answering yes, it makes it true that the correct answer would be no. So there's no way, because what it's enacting and what it's saying in the course of enacting are negatively aligned, it's not going to be able to answer truthfully. So, that, so I called it negative interference. You're just doing the next step, which is, I think, exactly what the implication was going to be, that um, when you have a creature that over time is representing and re-representing the world from different temporal perspectives, the thing that it enacts now is going to create feedback for its future representations. Okay? So a creature is moving through the world, it's enacting certain things, and it's representing and re-representing the world as it's acting. Um, and that's going to exactly, as you say, create a negative feedback between you know, what it does now and what it sees you know, later on. I think that's a very useful way of seeing, I think the, the terms enacting and describing, we can really visualize this loop that at a very primitive level, this is what we're doing all the time as we move through the world, enacting and describing. And this is actually a topic in the book of Varela Thompson and Roche, The Embodied Mind. So they kind of, they talk about this idea of this loop of enacting and describing, but they kind of apply an almost Buddhist philosophy that human beings are stuck. It's a Buddhist idea that human beings are stuck in this loop, uh, but they kind of bring it to a metaphysical level that we're stuck, you know, as subjects, we're stuck in this loop of enacting and describing, you know, interacting with objects and that we actually can't get outside that loop. And again, the Buddhist idea that we're searching for an ultimate ground, you know, that we're humans are clamoring for this ultimate ground, but that we can't actually find one because we're stuck within this loop. And well, their proposal is that we should abandon the search and just accept the groundlessness of reality. But I think I want to resist that. So on one hand, I do accept this idea and from your thought experiment that in some way as agents or at a lower level, just as a system that both an accent describes that we are wrapped up in the, in the process we're wrapped up in the world in some way. 
And yet, I would like there to be a way to distinguish, you know, ourselves from the world in such a way to kind of affirm the independence of the world, you know, with a view to realism or metaphysical foundationalism. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about whether that's possible or, you know, what way you lean in that kind of metaphysical question. So these are really nice questions. I think, so there's, there's a lot of different things to say, and these are just um, sort of initial responses and sort of half-baked ideas of my own that I've had for a while, but that I think aren't fully settled. A pop flossy podcast is the perfect place for those. <laughs> Good, okay. Except that it's, you know, etched into posterity this way. But I'll say it anyways. I think, so I was going to say, as you were describing the Varela Thompson position, I was going to say effectively what you ended up saying, which is, I don't know why we call that being stuck in the loop. That's part of what's one, that's part of what it is to exist and to be alive. And for part of what happens to be stuff that you do, I think that's a, that's a wonderful sort of position to be in. Um, we aren't separate from the world. We are enacting the world as we're representing it. And that partly means that you know we have an effect on what is the case. But it also means that what is the case isn't just us. I mean, I think part of part of what the feedback is, is, is you're not just getting reflections of yourself back. The world answers you, but it answers you in the way that it wants to answer you. So there's, I think in that, tightly coupled interaction that we have in the world, we see both reflections of ourselves in the world and reflections of the world back at us. So I think in, in a lot of ways that that coupled interaction is, that is what it is to live, that is what it is to be representing the world, but that's also the knowledge that there is a world independent of you um, and it pushes back on you just as you push into the world. I think Classical physics makes it possible, I think, to have the kind of disciplined separation of what's there in the world from, from what we put into the world. That's why classical physics allowed us to ignore the observer, so to speak, for so long. Um, we can stabilize the world as an object of knowledge and we can interact with the world in a way that gives us information about its properties without us affecting those properties in the course of trying to know them. I mean, I think, you know, part of what the thought experiment, that little, you know, sort of thought experiment that I, I gave just a second ago with the computer and the question, part of what that was meant to do was to show you, look, there are certain questions that you can ask that you can't answer them without affecting the world in the course of trying to give an answer. But that doesn't mean that for the vast majority of the questions that we want to ask about the world, we can't stabilize the world independently of the questions that we ask it as a and so because of that, if the world were entirely a classical world, I don't think the problem would be that great. We can precisely identify the places where our interference will fall. And moreover, and this is what makes effective agency possible, we can predict, predict in perfectly objective terms, the ways in which we can expect our own interference to limit the possibility of knowledge. I think quantum mechanics is very different. So I think that's exactly what's going on in quantum mechanics is, and I use the phrase I did precisely to bring that out, we can't stabilize the world as an object of knowledge independently of the questions that we ask it. The questions that we ask are going to affect the sorts of answers that are possible to give. 
And so I think if the world were classical, I would I would be on board with um, the idea that largely the effects of interference, it cuts things in a very nice way. It gives us agency. It'll, it, it allows us to be correct that when it comes to, to things like agency, we are right to think that the way the world is depends on you know, what we do and what we believe and what, you know, how we represent. But that's a very small part of the way the world is as a whole. Individually, it makes it possible to, to stabilize everything but our own lives, what happens in our own lives, and what depends on what happens in our own lives as objects of knowledge. But if the world is fundamentally quantum, then fundamentally I think we don't have the right separation of subject and object to be able to really make, to have foundations in the sense that you're asking for. So for most of that answer, I was feeling very happy and content, thinking this is a beautiful solution, you know, that I totally agree that, you know, this, whatever it's reflected, it's more than just us. And this was kind of my rough solution that we just need a less extreme idea of embeddedness or situatedness, that, you know, while we are situated, we can still distinguish inner states of the subject versus the outer world. So, you know, it's kind of just this more moderate type of embeddedness where we're not just so mixed up with the world that we're, you know, we're completely enmeshed. And again, we can stabilize the world as an object of knowledge independently of the question. And then at the end, reintroducing quantum mechanics, I started to feel the dread seeping in again. Uh, You're a philosopher of physics and you work a lot with quantum theory. There's a lot of questions arising here now, but do you think that we should have two separate treatments for, you know, medium-sized objects in the world of classical physics and then the quantum world? Or, I mean, I know that you're an anti-reductionist from your book, How Physics Makes Us Free, so I don't suppose you think that the the reality of the quantum level infects everything at the, the level of medium-sized objects. But I, I, how do you think about that there is this kind of schism or, I don't know, these these two worlds. Uh, I don't know how to think about these these issues sometimes. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the way that I would put it now, the way that I think of it now, though this may change, is that the right way to think of it is that something like decoherence or whatever it is that stabilizes the classical world as the effectively correct description at the level that we interact with it is one of the conditions of possibility of knowledge. So if it's decoherence, then um, you know that's what makes it possible for us to separate subject and object in such a way that we can know the world. So there aren't ultimate foundations. There isn't an intrinsic description of the world as it is in and of itself that's non-relational and that, that has all of the kinds of stability and objectivity that that we usually build into the idea of foundations for knowledge. But on the other hand, you know, there is, um, you know, level isn't the right word, but um, when decoherence kicks in, that allows for the kinds of of, uh, separation of subject and object that makes knowledge possible. Something like that, I think, seems right to me. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it's it's always mind-boggling for us, again, we haven't evolved to tackle these concepts, that we have to have almost different attitudes, different treatments of before and after decoherence kicking in. So I suppose I come away from this conversation with kind of a, a qualified 
acceptance of the fact that we can distinguish subjects and objects at the level of, you know, macroscopic objects after decoherence. So that's kind of this qualified metaphysical foundation at, at a certain, you know, level's not the right word, but at a certain scale. In a certain regime, put it that way, I think. In that. a certain regime, great. But the other side of that coin is that, you know, at the quantum level, yeah, it's crazy to think that there there's no there's no way of stabilizing the object of knowledge independently of us. So there's no distinction between subjects and objects giving rise to metaphysical foundations. So it's as bad as I thought it might be at the at the lowest end. Although, I mean, I like I do like the way that you put it before. I mean, there are foundations, but not ultimate foundations mm-hmm. and not complete foundations. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, that seems to be a natural end. So thank you so much for giving me your time. I've read your work for many years, so it was really great to dive into it in detail with you in person. And I'm sure my listeners will will uh, love to hear you speaking about it. So I wish you all the best with the new academic year coming up. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate all of your time. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.